Hello fellow time travelers, Tony Wood here. Just a quick note to let you know two things. One, um, during the recording of this episode, Danny's mic gave out about halfway through. So around minute 32, he's going to say something and you'll barely be able to hear him. We apologize for that. The other thing we wanted to let you know is that it's Pride Month, so we're kind of celebrating Pride this month with our first all-gay panel. Our second episode later this month will not have an all-gay panel, unfortunately, but it'll still be in the spirit of Pride. So, in any case, happy Pride, and enjoy the episode. Thank you. Good morning! We're too much scrolling. I'm Steve. I'm Chip. And we have all the information you need to survive another week. New shows published every Tuesday. Find us on iTunes and Stitcher and TuneIn Radio. And you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. We'll see you in the future. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the heavy task of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally heavy three-person discussion panel. I'm not saying that because we're all losing weight, I'm saying that because of the Gravitron in the story, but... Yeah, there's probably room for improvement on my side anyway, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. I'm down to 242 pounds, by the way. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes who has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hi, I'm back, and I don't mind being called thick. So, (laughs) Unlike Jamie McCrimmon... Who also is thick, but in a different way. <laughs> and finally, there's our other intermediate level fan, and this time it's none other than Danny Saladon. Hello, Danny. Hello, hello. Who has not been with us on this podcast since episode two. Uh, no, uh, he did. There, he there was another episode. Uh, that was the Star Trek one. That doesn't count. Oh, that's uh, right. That's right. Technicalities. Yeah, technicalities. That was April Fool's. That wasn't what you thought it was. Anyway, before we get to talking about the book, please remember our new Patreon page. You know where it is. It's at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. We know you all have them, and you're trying to get rid of them always on Facebook. It's really kind of pathetic. As a gift for supporting (laughs) us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. Actually, it's not pathetic at all. I bought at least three of them in the last month. As usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, and Toby Bengelsdorf. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, Thank you. This time, we're discussing Jerry Davis's novelization of Kit Peddler's script for the Moonbase, which has confusingly been retitled The Cybermen. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Cybermen, adapted by Jerry Davis from the script by Kit Peddler, entitled The Moonbase, that aired from 2.11.67 to 3.4.67, published by Target Books in February 1975. As of this recording in May of 2018, this title is available both as an unabridged audiobook and in a reproduction published by BBC Books in 2011, also published in Turkish in 1975, 150 pages. Turkish. Turkish. As a matter of fact, let's start there, and I'll you pass have a that copy around. Of the I do have a copy uh. of the Turkish novelization, Dr. Kim the Cyberliminer. <laughs> I think. I don't know how to pronounce it. Cybermenler. Yeah, Cybermenler. I think it, that's how it's pronounced. Speaking of which, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I stated in our 10th Planet podcast that that book was out of print, but it too has, is now available as a repro from BBC Books. It has been from since 2011, so my apologies. Um, obviously, this is not the first outing for the Cybermen on television, because that was the 10th Planet. It is their first outing in a Target book, which is probably the reason for the retitling of the story. Apparently, anything named the Moonbase would not have sold as well, even with the Cybermen emblazoned on the cover. It's odd, though, that the original cover artist was given the wrong photo reference for the Cybermen, since this design, which was also used for the Turkish edition, um, is the wrong Cyberman. 
In fact, we're not getting that design of Cyberman until the invasion, and before then, we have to do Tomb of the Cybermen and the Wheel in Space. Yeah, that problem was corrected for the hardback edition and new paperback edition published in 1981, which also has a vastly different back cover blurb. In fact, let's hear just how different they are. I'm going to read the first one to you. I'm going to have Dalton read the second. So I'm going to read mine first. <clears throat> this is from the original edition. One by one, their limbs became diseased. They were replaced by plastic and steel. Little by little, their brains tired. Computers work just as well. With metal limbs, they had the strength of ten men. They could live in the airless vacuum of space. They had no heart, no feelings, no emotions, and only one goal. Power. In the year 2070, a small blue planet caught their attention. They would land on its satellite and from there, attack, ransack, destroy, and finally abandon. All caps now. The satellite was the moon! The helpless planet Earth! Their names, the Cybermen! Can the Doctor defeat an enemy whose threat is almost as great as that of the mighty Daleks? You see what they were trying to do there. They were trying to sell the Cybermen to be as big as the Daleks, and of course, they're just fucking not. That's not That's not even like an accurate description of the story, though. No, because these back cover blurbs never are. Never are. Yeah, see they're if, usually pretty vague. See but... if that one's any better, uh, Don. A mystery virus is wreaking havoc among the crew of the Earth's weather control station on the moon. While investigations into the strange disease are in progress, International Space Headquarters Earth puts the entire moon base into strict quarantine, the Doctor and his companions included. To make matters worse, moon base personnel inexplicably vanish and vital weather control equipment is sabotaged. Who is responsible? The director of the base suspects the time travelers. The Doctor fears that the ruthlessly evil Cybermen are at work. Yes. Dot, dot, dot. Dot dot dot, and and that and that synopsis pretty much covers Acts one and two, basically. Yes. Just Acts one and two, whereas the Turkish edition, well, it's slightly different. Now, granted, my my knowledge of Turkish is small enough to fit on a postage stamp, but Danny, I just sent you the uh, text of it via email, and maybe it's just the way it was translated, but at one point it moves into the first person so Danny just read it with the first person a person living on the planet Telos call for immortality by replacing body organs with plastic and steel they perfected my intelligence using computers instead of a brain emotions like love hate anger even fear have been erased from their lives the Cybermen decided in 2070 to take over the earth this little blue planet could have put their superiority in danger once they had taken all of the mines and destroyed their advanced technology, they would have left Earth as an empty and lifeless planet. After my research and investigation, I understand that I will easily rule the world after I have captured the moon. <laughs> that makes no sense. <laughs> I don't even know why it goes in the first person. Yeah. But I looked it up twice, and sure enough, it, it goes in the first person on the last line. For no apparent reason, it's a Cyberman telling us all this. As they say at the beginning of the first episode of uh, The Handmaid's Tale in the second season, what the actual fuck? They had yeah. some time on their hands as they were floating through space after <laughs> the Gravitron. Yeah. So. But if you look at that edition, that's the type of Cyberman that actually appears in that book. And this is a little more menacing. Yeah. A little less uh, goofy. Goofy, yeah. Because they get goofier as they go. They but do. that actually is a fairly this is kind of creepy. decent, yeah. creepy version of them. Um... This also, although this one may be numbered number 14 and Target's frankly bizarre numbering system, it's actually only the ninth new Target book to be published after the initial three reprints from the 1960s, which is why we get illustrations again, such as they are. Those weird illustrations that look like they should be in a Hardy Boys book. Or I like them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think the, the problem I had with the illustrations was that the uh, the costumes were slightly wrong, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, because they, they described Ben as having a, a sailor look, and the pictures had nothing like that. He doesn't. He doesn't. He's, he's wearing very lovely pants at one point. 
shows off his ass marvelously. <laughs> so it's a good thing we have that existing episode where Ben bends over to the camera and we're like, oh. But yeah, that and some of the characters don't look quite right. Troughton really doesn't look quite right. It's just bizarre. He looks right on the cover, though, but that's the first edition. And that's the cover that the uh, repro uses. Uh, so what was I saying about illustrations? Uh, oh, we're done talking about the book. We're, there's not really much to say about the televised version, except it did indeed go out under the title of the Moon Base. So the reveal of the Cybermen as the enemies didn't come until the end of episode one, which ironically makes the TV version just a little more effective in terms of suspense, i.e. a lot more effective, because... There's nothing effective. There's no suspense in this. You know the Cybermen are there. You know they're coming. You know everything that they do. But if you watch it on TV, you don't know it's the Cybermen until one shows up right in front of Jamie at the end of the first episode. I think the the only part that was a little suspenseful was the part in the food stores when we first kind of experienced the Cybermen. That that scene was suspenseful. Right. we still knew it was going to be Cybermen. We still know it's them. I mean, the book's called The Cybermen. Exactly. Yeah, and that lack of suspense is just ridiculous. In fact, here's an th- interesting thing. This story was commissioned before the last episode of The Tenth Planet had had actually been aired. That's how strong the positive reaction to the Cybermen was. That, obviously, the BBC had a winner here, and that's probably why they're so prominent on the cover, because they knew they could sell it. And it's the first one with the Cybermen, so obviously they can. Unfortunately, that wasn't enough to keep the BBC from doing its usual great job of erasing episodes. And the story bizarrely lost episodes 1 and 3. 2 and 4 still exist, as do the audio recordings of the other two, which led the BBC to have um, the missing episodes reanimated. And I'll show you episode 3 if we decide we want to and we're done if we do that our reactions to that episode will be available on patreon as a patrons only special just as we did for the underwater menace we kind of tried to do a little mst3k on it didn't work so well but at least you hear us reacting to how mind-numbingly stupid that episode actually is one other notable thing that we have to be told because we can't see it This is the last story to use the Hartnell titles. The next story, which is teased at the end of this one but not in print, is the first one to use the Troughton titles, which will be used for the rest of his run. Alright. The other thing that we're going to discuss in terms of this book, because we have a panel of three out gay men, or at least I hope we're all out. If we're not out, then please say so now, because I'll (laughs) edit it out of the podcast. Last time I checked. Yes, okay, good. Is that there is an online critic who has stated of all of the Cybermen stories that they are a parable for the horrors of homosexuality. Which kind of makes sense because Kit Peller and Jerry Davis, when they wrote the book uh, Mutant 59, The Plastic Eaters, did have a terrible scene with an openly gay character and it was just the most homophobic thing ever. And apparently you can read certain things into the script that show it to be homophobic. I guess we'll figure those out, if we can. If If. they're there. If they're there. If they are there, indeed. Yes, exactly. So, Danny, since it's been a while since you've been here, what was your first impression of this book? My impression of the book was that it felt very much like Star Trek First Contact. In that, you know, you you have this mystery that surrounds the day-to-day operations of of what's going on. And eventually it gets revealed through through problem-solving that, yes, there is a virus that is on board. There's an infection of some sort. It's slowly taking over the crew, and we need to figure out what's going on here. It went even further in that I saw parallels between the workers on the base and the Cybermen that they that they both that they both kind of mirrored each other in the way that uh, uh, what's the commander's name I forgot already oh uh, Hobson Hob- yeah he's telling he's telling the crew like okay we we've we've got uh we've got all these other things that we need to do 
very important so there's there's not going to be much time for relaxation i want to expect you know triple shifts from here on out and right. it's very very robotic sort of uh uh way of of treating his crew and mm. and they they're they're con- absolutely content to to take care of whatever whatever thing they need to do i mean including not e- not just doing scientific pursuits but also if i need to be the cook if i need to be you know cleanup or coffee boy or whatever the case may be mm-hmm. it seems to parallel the whole starfleet and board kind of you know one's the one's the the dark mirror version of the other in yeah. that in that the cybermen forcefully take people and make them do you know just what they were doing already yeah exactly <laughs> what they were doing except just you know no as, a co- as a as a collective mind okay i hadn't thought of it that way uh dalton what was your first impression I like that. I like that take on it. Um, I didn't put that together myself, but I agree. Yes, this this one felt pretty straightforward to me. Just kind of like dial it in. There's a problem. The doctor is here. He's gonna fix it. Also, um, the last uh, episode I recorded with you guys was the first Charlton book, mm-hmm. uh, Power of the Daleks, and I really enjoyed the doctor in that one. This doctor feels like Hartnell. This doctor does not feel like the fun Troughton doctor that I got in the last book I read. And so I was just like, maybe it was written that way. Maybe it was a little more serious in tone. So there wasn't as much opportunity for him to be kind of the goofball. There were were bits and pieces here and there. Um, But it definitely was just kind of like cut and dry. Like, here's the problem. We're going to solve it. He figured it out. And like always... The end was just like snap, easy, easy, clean, like wrap up, and yeah, it wasn't bad. It just was kind of eh. Yeah, I could see that because the Trout and Doctor by this point had been toned down a little bit. Gone are the funny, um, the funny uh, voices and dressing up as a different character every episode, which is really a good change, believe it or not. <laughs> but. The comic elements on screen have been diluted okay. for this version. They have been diluted for this version. Um, especially during the scene where he's trying to get specimens. And he sends the one guy flying out of his boot. Yeah, that's <laughs> meant to be a comic scene. Yeah, that, yeah. that's the, the main one I was thinking of. Is, yeah, kind of that happening. It's like, that's funny. Yeah, but it's interesting you noted that because this is the story where it all shifts. This is the story where you get that fabulous speech by Troughton. There are dark corners in this universe that have bred the most terrible things. They must be fought. There are some corners of the universe which have bred the most terrible things. Things which act against everything that we believe in. They must be fought. And to that, the death. To the death. To except the death. he doesn't say to the death on screen, because that's not something the Troughton Doctor would ever say. That's something <laughs> Jerry Davis would say. Yeah, I, I would say the Doctor's presence in this story was kind of subdued, except for that one scene where it like punctuated the end of that chapter very oh, yeah. well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because at that point he's, he's shifted from being this kind of futzy, crazy... <laughs> Yeah, the Trouton Doctor has almost been like a Fred Wynn character up to this point. It's like, oh, let's see what we can do. <laughs> and then suddenly it's like, we, they must be fought. And it's brilliant because it actually works, but it's also a more modern take on the Doctor. And yeah. that's sort of the beginning of the modern Doctor because you can't imagine Hartnell doing that. No. No. Hartnell, Hartnell would be there, but probably, yeah, exactly. The other thing that shifts is the Cybermen. And in my notes, I note that um, we're going to be seeing this exact same epilogue at least once more in uh, Jerry Davis's book, Tomb of the Cybermen. This is his first draft of it, and there are always subtle differences. For example, Cybermen's goal here is given as power, not survival. We're reminded that they don't need air, even though somehow they're able to suffocate very dramatically when their chest units go out. I don't know what that's about. It also refers to the 10th planet a little anticlimactically as the only other time a cyber ship had landed on the Earth. And it's humiliation there, which is an odd weird, uh, which is a weird word choice for creatures that have no emotions. And there's no mention of Mondas until we get it later in the book, and then it's turned into an acronym, mm-hmm. 
which is bizarre. <laughs> and another strange thing to note is how much this tells us something of the future. Davis talks about the Cybermen seeing Earth as an eventual threat to them, and by this point, Tomb of the Cybermen and two other cyber stories had followed this one and hadn't been novelized yet. He could have been thinking ahead to his script for Revenge of the Cybermen, which aired two months after the publication of this book, as it turns out, and the plot is very similar. And it kind of eerily predicts the plot of uh, Earthshock from 1982. As for the whole Mondas Telos thing, listeners, you may be wondering are they from Mondas? Are they from Telos? Telos! Are they from Mondas? Well, according to a deleted scene in the story, Cybermen escaped Mondas, fled to Telos, settled there. Mondas came here, blew up. And these are Telosian Cybermen. But they're still Mondasian Cybermen, if that makes sense. Yeah, they're immigrants. They're immigrants, basically. Okay. They're the ones that got away and escaped the uh, Trumpian death camps. Okay. Gotcha. So, where do we want to start? Do we want to tackle the whole gay subtext thing, or do we think there is one? I, I'm not seeing it. I'd, I'd love to, to talk about that, but I, I'm not seeing it just yet. Okay. Uh, apparently... It's based on lines such as Ben saying, I don't like that word, converted. And the whole idea that the Cybermen, in order to make other people like them, have to kind of change them and alter them from good, God-loving human beings into automata who are basically clones and wear the same sort of fetish wear. I mean, here it's not leather, like we saw at AML last weekend, but instead it's plasticky fetish wear. I mean, early Cybermen outfits could indeed be fetish wear. True, but couldn't the same be said about them being assimilated into heteronormativity? <laughs> That's true. That's true, it could be. Yeah, that they end up being just like every other married couple out there. Yeah. True. Yeah. That's a thought. What do you think? Yeah, I feel like it's it's more kind of about assimilation and less about homophobia. And that's kind of what I've always got from the Cybermen is it's more it's it's kind of like the Borg. It's more about making you like us, not necessarily like although there are the whole tropes of like gay men, like luring young men. in. Uh... <laughs> they lure them in with sugar. Yes. yes, we have some we have candy. Come to the dark side. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I was kind of looking through the notes and I saw that that was something you brought up. and I was like, OK. And then as I was reading, I was like, I'm not picking up on this, but I'm sure if someone saw it, then, you know, that that's literary criticism. That's kind of how it goes. It's... Well, that's just it. If it is literary criticism, they have to have some textual evidence for it. And I'm thinking that the textual evidence for that reading is a bit thin. low on, thin on the ground. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, well, they wrote this book that had this really homophobic scene in it. Yeah. You'd almost expect any heterosexual British writer from the 1960s to write such a scene. But that's almost kind of like when we read The Celestial Toymaker, that person that had the review or yeah. whatever about the overt racism there, and it's like, mm, I mean, yeah, if you're looking for it and you really want to amplify it, sure, great, yeah. but it's, it's it's not like that high on the scale of racism. Exactly. Like, so... This again, it's like, yeah, if you're looking for it, maybe there's some homophobia there, but it's not, it's not really peaking too much. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if that person was just projecting. They might have been. They might have been, and I could see a lot of that. Speaking of Celestial Toymaker, I interviewed Nigel Robinson yes. last week, and he talked about that. He wish he wishes he could have uh, written right. that book. Oh. Yeah, because he said he saw it on its original broadcast, and it was magical. Magical is not a word that I would have associated, associated. with that book. <laughs> so, no, it was, definitely not, it not. was not magical. And yes, we are on topic because that was another J Jerry Davis joint. So, uh, and not as good a one, unfortunately. Though apparently the TV version was, ooh, ah, but the book version, nah, not so much. Not enough to even give you a contact buzz. All right. Well... We've settled the gay thing, <laughs> so yeah. I guess our work here is done. How about Three the other stuff? Nays. <laughs> Three nays. <laughs> Three nays and a backflip, yes. All right, so what do we have to say about the rest of the book? What do we want to talk about? 
there were so many secondary characters that they kept introducing by name. Yes. And then not coming back to. Yes. Yes. The, the few that they did come back to, I kept forgetting who they were, what their name was. Well, he did give you that charming little bit of um, naming the nationality of every single character as soon yes. as he introduced them. The only problem is... You um, forget that two paragraphs later. Yes, and he doesn't necessarily do anything with it. No. Um, they they even give, give each of the scientists numbers. Again, coming back to the... You know, they're they're just like the Cybermen. They also yes. have numbers. Yes, except they don't use them very often. No. Yeah, and the Cybermen, as it turns out, have names. They just don't use them very often. Yes. In fact, they stop using them altogether by the time we get to their third appearance. So it's like, oh, yeah. I can kind of see where... If Davis was trying to do something subtle with that, it wasn't very subtle. And if he was trying to do something clever, it wasn't quite clever enough. Yeah. Because, it, yeah, it like didn't you succeed. said, it, it confuses you after a while. The only ones that I can remember, let's see if we can name them off, shall we, are Hobson, who we know is from the north of England, even though he doesn't have the accent on screen, which is <laughs> just bizarre. We have Benoit. Benoit. Balls. Good work there, uh, Benoit. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I was laughing at your name. I'm afraid those of you who are Archer fans will get that reference, and you're going to be hearing that a lot through this podcast, especially when we say that Frenchman's name. It was originally just Jules, and that's why in the televised version he's wearing a cravat. It's so as to cover up his little name tag. Because they didn't have time to change it. So yeah, Benoit. Benoit. Balls. And then we have Niels, a mad Norwegian, even though he didn't seem all that mad at all. And let's see, there was an American one. And uh, Ralph, who was number 14 or number 12. Yeah, 14. Is like the, the cook. And he's Jamaican on screen, even though he's not in the book. Wasn't in the illustration either. No, he wasn't even black in the illustration. No. I can't really tell what he was in the illustration. Yeah, kind of sad, really. So yeah, lots of secondary characters, all interchangeable, all very Cybermenian. Yeah, yeah, Hobson and Benoit... Balls. ...were the only two that really had a uh, any impact or part in the story. Yeah. Past their singular scene where they get attacked or have something bad happen. Yeah, and unfortunately we need those other characters because you have to have cannon fodder. Yeah. Most of them get cyber-converted at one point or, you know, just to show how bad things are on the base. Yeah. So I guess that's why they're there. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I understand it from that point, from that perspective. It's like, yes, they need to have names so that as I'm talking about them, to get to the part where they have something to do, we know who it is, but yeah. Oh, and Dr. Evans. Dr. Evans. Right, but he's out of commission for for yeah. basically the first half of the story, so. But in the grand scheme of things, you could just say the chef. You could say the yes. doctor. You yeah. could say the director. You, Their names don't matter. Which it's, makes it even more almost Cybermanian, doesn't yes, it? Because yes. it's terrifying that they could go without those names and be perfectly fine. Speaking of Dr. Evans... He features in what I think is one of the worst written sequences I have read in the Doctor Who book in a while. Because I just want to go back in time and say to Jerry Davis, I know the fucking Cybermen are on the cover. There's no need to drain every little bit of suspense that's in the story out of it. But instead, you do. Especially when you get to... Let's see, where is it? They're in the medical unit... Uh, da, 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 da. He's not dead yet. Not dead yet. <laughs> yes, I'm getting better. Where is it? It's before the doctor says clever girl, which is kind of... <laughs> I don't know what Allison would make of that one. Uh, in fact, Allison would have a lot of uh, fodder in this book. I, I oh, yes. yes. Polly yeah. the coffee girl. We've got, yes. to, we've got to talk about that because it's a misnomer, and yet it's also true. But on page 35, at least, said Polly, glaring at him, I try to help. With a ward full of sick men and no doctor, someone's got to do something. 
She stalked disdainfully off to the other beds, fussing round the patients, and eventually stopping opposite the one containing Dr. Evans. I wonder who this is, she said. The others had followed her down the ward. Don't get too close, Polly, said the doctor. Have a look at his chart. That's a good idea. Polly picked up the temperature chart from the bed and looked at it. Ben looked over her shoulder. It's Dr. Evans, he exclaimed. Motherfucker. Really? <laughs> I mean, honestly, that is the most clumsy sequence. She stopped opposite Dr. Evans' bed. I wonder who he is. Let's find out. Let's read the chart. <gasps> it's Dr. Evans, like we were told three, three paragraphs, paragraphs ago. ago. Yep. Honestly, that is terrible, terrible writing. Anyway, I'm sorry. It had to be said, though, and now I've said it. <laughs> All right, let's go on. <laughs> just uh, just thinking of the, the rows of the beds and everything, seeing the, the Cybermen come in and uh, pick pick up their, their uh, victims one by one, starting with the Dr. Evans. And then they come in and Jamie sees them, freaks out, and they're like, not you yet. We're going to go with the second person that <laughs> we got. We're coming for you, though. Just, just you wait. Um, I thought that was interesting it's like okay oh, yeah. yeah like and they got actors to do it who could actually throw somebody like a pound of meat over their shoulder so now what happens when they get outside of the moon base though yeah well that is explained at one point they have them in some sort of cyber container i guess since everything's cyber yeah. you know cyber container some sort of egg-like thing that keeps them fresh Okay. <laughs> They're going across the moons. I, I wonder what happens to the two guys that were taken out of their suits. Yeah, because yeah. they were. Yeah, they left the suits behind, but the the suits are still there. But how did you how do you open them to get to the juicy scientist inside without killing it? Kinder egg style. Yeah, you know? exactly. I mean, they're not converted yet. It it may be like the Borg. Because the Borg can shoot those things right into them very quickly. The uh, nanoprobes. And convert them to the point where they can survive in a vacuum very quickly. But the Cybermen, are they don't really operate like that. So, I don't know. It's just one of those several mysteries and plot holes. Things that I usually overlook, but while we're talking about it, you know, why not? It's just, oh, I don't know. Yeah. So we've got this mirroring going on. Let's go ahead and talk about Polly and how she... um, either is sexistly treated or whether she actually is kind of got it going on for once. Let me just say this about that. Mm -hmm. I think Polly should get the uh, badass character of the week. Okay. Okay. Uh, She said, here's our holy water, said Polly, holding up a small bottle of nail varnish remover. Polly is going to stab them and burn them with bleach, earning her spot on the Maury Povich show. That's all I had to say about that. Yeah. Uh I agree. I agree. Um, Because compared to her co-companions, Jamie's out like a light, because the idiot, unlike every other guy from 1740s Scotland, does not know how to maneuver in in low gravity. (laughs) Stupid guy. Actually, there's a reason for that. He was added to the script at the last minute. So they had to give him something to do. He actually gets some of Ben's lines later, which is sad. So they added a companion and then didn't write him into the next story? Right. Yeah. What? Yeah. He he was that quick an addition to the cast. So you have that in Underwater Menace, which Uh they've just come out of. Yeah. He's also given very little to do there. In fact, you'd hardly know it was his first story because he doesn't get a lot of lines saying, oh my goodness, this is crazy, this is insane, nothing's like this. You get that one moment in this book where he says, back in my time, and they both look at him because it's the first time that he's actually referred to his time. Yeah, It's like, it's true, that's the first time he's referred to his time. He's been there six episodes already. It's like, oh, poor Jamie. A lot of times when they introduce new companions, new characters or whatever, it's it's for a replacement or it's they see potential there. What's his story? What was like the decision? Oh, this guy, he's the one. Like, do you know anything backstory of that? Or was it just like, eh, let's have another companion? From what I gather, 
Um, <laughs> this is going to be good. Yeah, from what I gather. Uh, they were thinking about adding a third companion, always. They wrote the Highlanders with Jamie leaving at the end of it. But they were going to see how Fraser Hines worked out. If you read the Highlanders, if you listen to the Highlanders, Jamie doesn't do a hell of a lot in that story at all. So it's kind of a wonder that he ends up with them at the end of it. You're like, there's another character named Kirsty that you're like, she's so much more there. She should be the companion and not Jamie. But they had um, some sort of option for a longer contract for him. They already had a girl. Yeah, they already (laughs) had a girl, basically. So they decided, yeah, it might be a little problematic to have two guys and two girls on the ship, even though that's how they started the series. And by the way, you can watch on Twitch this month if you want to see what that looks like. Ha ha! Anyway. Um, yeah, I think that part of it will be over by the time this goes out. So what were we talking about? Oh yeah, we were talking about How the fact Jamie, that they had yeah. a... Yeah, they had two girls. So he just had an out. option. He had a contract and they said, okay. Well, it was mainly because they saw how well he interacted with Patrick Troughton. Okay. He and Patrick Troughton got along like a house on fire. And you can see that once these other two go. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> it is bizarre that once you get rid of Ben and Polly, which... Spoiler alert is happening in about two stories. Yeah, so get used Big to them. Surprise. Yeah, I know, isn't it? Because we already knew that the uh, the producer decided that he didn't really care much for Polly. She wasn't working out in the last story, and he figured that she and Ben were a match set. So they both have to go at the same time, which they did. Yeah. Which leaves us Jamie. Which means you get Jamie plus two new female companions, not at the same time. And the the interaction just glows after that. Yes. Suddenly, you've seen those yes. stories. You've seen Tomb. Yes. And I think I showed you one with Zoe. Mm-hmm. And the interactions are amazing. Yeah. This doctor just does well with two companions yes. and not three. As long as it's a nice mix of them. And as long as one of those companions is Jamie. You would not know it from reading this book because there's basically no Jamie in it. Yeah, there's nothing for him to interact with. Yeah, apart from the witches, you know, burning them with holy water, which is a nice line. I don't (laughs) know how they would have done that without him, actually. Would Ben have come up with that? I think Polly would have come up with it all on her own. Yeah, something would have had to click in her and be like, oh, yes. Yes. Plastic reacts to this. Yes. Now, people do think of this as the proof that 60s Doctor Who is sexist. Because you get that line where the Doctor sends Polly off to make coffee for everybody. (laughs) Twice. Twice, even. Ignoring the fact that Ben ends up serving coffee as much as Polly does and does little else. He comes up with the fire extinguisher idea, but that's about it. The delivery system for her Polly cocktail, which is lovely, lovely name for it. But there are sexist bits in this book, such as, does anyone, did anyone catch the one that was really glaring towards the end of the book? It's a way that one of the cyber-controlled guys gets in. Everyone else is distracted by Polly's miniskirt. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're paying attention <coughs> to her. And it's like, oh, yes, we're being attacked. Let's look at the girl. Yeah. Because nobody in 2070 dresses like this anymore. They're all covered from head to toe in plastic because people in the future wear plastic. (laughs) God. We have a lot to look forward to. Oh, yes, we do. But I think you're right, Danny. Polly is the kick-ass character of this particular story. She is the gold star. Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of a shame we're going to be losing her sometime soon. What do we think of the others? When yeah. we think of the others. When we think of the others. Um, yeah, Ben. Ben's kind of just, eh, whatever. I think they're just kind of, they're kind of there. Hey, guys, uh, point the machine towards this. Uh, blow in the space. <laughs> do this. Do this. Yeah, everything's just kind of waiting for something else to happen. Yeah. In a way. It's very formulaic, isn't it? Yeah. It's... Get used to that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because the Cyberman, the next Cyberman story is, depending on who you talk to, something special or, eh, it's got a good reputation. 
The next one after that is exactly like this one, except it's two parts longer. And then the one after that brings the Cybermen to Earth, which really does shake things up. That being said, yeah, this is your typical base under siege. This is this is Revenge of the Cybermen. This is Tenth Planet. This is the Moon Base. It could be any any big bad attacking, and it would read the same. Yeah, yeah, it really would, and it's a little worrying that that's the case. Yeah, the Cybermen really themselves. The only thing they've got going is they can cybernetize is that even a word they can control humans with their cyber control and that's about it yeah and that's on screen that's really creepy body horror Mm -hmm. it works well on screen doesn't work so well on the page otherwise we'd be talking about it already i know some of the descriptions of the the black veins or the black uh yeah, falling falling along the the nerves. Falling along the nerves. That yeah, that's a that was like a good bit of body horror. But overall, it's like, eh. yeah, they're asleep, they're comatose, they're there. Yeah, <laughs> and there's only one illustration in the book that really captures that kind of uh, body horror, and that is I don't think it's in this edition, is it? Yes, it is. It's on page ninety four. That one. <laughs> Of the uh, cyberni- uh, cybernetized guys coming in with these bizarre helmets on their heads. Yeah. Which are nothing like the helmets that they wear on screen, but at least their eyes are nice and blank and terrifying. Yeah. So there is that, <clears throat> I guess. So Ben's really not doing much of anything except, how does the line go? He says, squat down low and squirt them with all you've got. <laughs> Yeah, there's your homophobia right there. Yeah, there I was about to say. And I love that one of the chemicals that they use in cocktail poly is propane. Propane, yeah. Yes. <laughs> now you listen to me, mister. I work for a living. And I mean real work, not writing down gobbledygook. I provide the people of this community with propane and propane accessories. As so, opposed to con pain. We are pro <laughs> exactly. especially against the Cybermen. Um, I see what you did there. Mm-hmm. Yes. What else? Um, just something that that we we've brought up in the past about the about Doctor Who initially being kind of educational. Mm-hmm. Um, there were there were a few things in here that kind of fit that with, with talk, you know talking about Polly creating these mixtures, talking about the way plastic reacts to these chemicals uh the bits um where they're talking about the gravitron and the way that gravity affects earth Mm um kind of explaining what happens when they control it how water levels would rise and weather systems like that Mm -hmm. um i feel like there was there was one other thing that kind of you mean as as far as scientific accuracy yes or, or giving you know, if these are still aimed towards, you know, young adults, something that is a little more real. How gravity would react on the moon. Yeah. That would probably be the biggest one. Yeah. And yet, in the same book, <laughs> what happens when they shoot a hole in the moon base dome? How do they cover it? How <laughs> do they seal tray. it? With a coffee tray. With a transparent plastic coffee tray. Holy fucking shit. And they're in a dome, so it's like, <laughs> no, that would not be flush. Also, you probably need something a little more porous. To... Yeah. But okay. Okay. That's, that's your that's your 1950s, you know, plastic will solve all the ills of the world kind yes. of mentality. Exactly. And the saddest part is, this script is not written by Jerry Davis. It is written by Kit Pedler, who is the paid scientific advisor for Doctor Who at this point. Smack my head, as the youngsters say. Well, they don't say it. They say SMH, and they text it. Yeah. Yeah. But still, you can see the educational or semi-educational yeah. stuff trying to come out. Yeah, there are bits and pieces here and there. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a mention earlier... Early in the story about having gone through their entire reserves of uh, interferon, mm-hmm. which was uh, an interesting inclusion. Yeah, because that was a big thing at the time. In the 60s, 
not so much in the 70s, where Ben and Polly are supposed to have come from. <laughs> so it's weird for him to be going on about it for even as long as he does. Oh, I did find another thing that's supposedly some proof that this is a parable about the horrors of homosexuality. It's when uh, Nils, Nils is talking about his family being in the path of the hurricane. Hobson says, I understand, son, we all have wives and families. All of us. Every single last one. Even that fop from France over there. You know, Benoit. Balls. Exactly. And it's like, oh, so as soon as you're a Cyberman, you won't have a wife and family anymore? I would think that's a selling point. <laughs> Honestly. I'm, I'm serious, though. There is a Doctor Who magazine comic story in which the Cybermen from the future come to Earth and they kind of over-radiate humanity with emotions. They basically trigger every emotional trigger we've got all at once. And they say... Look, look at what your emotions do to you. Wouldn't you prefer to have a life that doesn't have these emotions? And most of humanity comes to them willingly to be cyber converted. So the doctor's got to fight a whole race wanting to willingly be cyber converted simply because they've seen what it feels like to have too much emotion. Again, that and that and that points back to that whole 1960s mentality that better uh life through chemicals or, or, or what is that <laughs> better life through chemicals so the uh thomas uh, not thomas o'leary um o'leary why am i forgetting his name so quickly but but basically it's it's this whole thought this whole notion that that you can live a better life by buying everything from the catalog and you know you you can you can customize your own life in infinite amount of ways and be, be different, yet be the same. Yeah, well, happy pills, yeah. basically. Yeah, the idea of pharmacology being a fix for our emotional foibles. Yeah, I think that's really a way of um, Peddler saying, this is what Peddler and Davis saying, this is the route we'd want to go down, we shouldn't. Here's what could happen. Though this story isn't exactly much of a cautionary tale, because it doesn't look like the Cybermen want to do much of anything, except get revenge for their humiliation from before and they're not supposed to be emotional enough to do that right even though on screen they do have the line where they say something along the lines of your stupid earth brains couldn't figure this out and when hobson says oh that's how you entered the base they one of them actually says clever 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 which isn't in the book it was very simple. Only stupid earth brains like yours would have been fooled. Go on. Since we couldn't approach derailed, we came up under the surface and cut our way through your storeroom, contaminating your food supplies on the way. A simple hole, that's all. A hole? That explains the sudden air pressure drops we've been recording. Clever, clever, clever. You know, you know they 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 make they make the characters so um, easy to vilify. I wonder if there's any sort of Cold War kind of you know distrust going on there. If the Cybermen are supposed to be the Russians and maybe the moon base is supposed to be the Americans or well, I do find it interesting that the moon base personnel do not have a Russian among them so that says something there should at least be one Star Trek had already gone that route yeah. I mean if we're talking about 1967 with this episode yeah Star Trek was just about to go that route I think I'm forgetting when Chekhov was uh, introduced but yeah yeah, there could be a lot of that going on. That this is what the Russians are like. They're going to convert you. They're going to take over your little babies and they're going to get, take over power. Cold and heartless. Right. Yes. Right. Non-emotional. Mm-hmm. They right. drink vodka a lot. And you, can't un- and you can't understand their reasoning because it's it's whatever reasoning they have that's just not plain to us. Yeah, yeah. Because it's all cold and emotionless. Yeah, I could see that. That makes more sense to me than having the anti-gay uh, subtext. Yeah. It really does. Is there anything else that we can think of? Because usually we talk a bit more about these books, but this one? 
really isn't giving us a lot. I love the fact that the um, that the Cybermen, <laughs> that the humans that are converted to Cybermen are referred to as being under radio control, like little cars, so they're like RC cars. Yes, yes. That's that's brilliant, and yet it's also kind of stupid. Um, yes. I, I I wanted to go a bit more into the Cybermen, and I'm sorry for for bringing up the Borg again. That's fine, but please do. Uh, there's a passage. Uh, put themselves in the giant clips connected to the power of Cybermen batteries and recharge themselves. Otherwise, they are operational 24 hours a day. The rear section of the spaceship, however, was exceptional in that it had been specially fitted out for the conversion of Earthmen. <coughs> Lying from sun to stern, there are three long, narrow tables, like operating theater tables. Several Cybermen were, at present, attaching metal clips to the heads of the three of the men from the moon base. This is very, very reminiscent of, of the Borg. Oh, yeah, yeah, because it would all be just basically regeneration cubicles and uh, conversion. Yes, and, and another section. You are surrounded, the cyber leader went on. All resistance is useless. <laughs> you must open the entry port. <laughs> we actually get resistance is useless at least three times yes. in this book, don't we? Yes. And it's like, oh, God. And the sad part is, by 1967, that was already that was already a cliche. Oh wow! Yeah, so that shows you how long it's been around. It, the the Borg, if nothing else, actually revitalized that phrase for a while. But that's why so many people know it now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they really there's at least that, and I wish there was more of it because the body horror bits are really quite scary. In fact, if we do watch that episode. Even in the animated version, it's just like, ugh. It gives you just a real shudder of fear, and it's one of the few things it does. It's kind of marred by the fact that the music they use is stock music, which was also used for a really bad American horror movie called The Horror of Party Beach. Yeah. Yeah, and it was done on an MST3K. So wow. MST3K fans know some of the music from this story <laughs> because they've already heard it in that. And they've heard Tom Servo and uh, Crow talking over it, which is just hilarious. By the way, if Mondas is suddenly an acronym now, what does it stand for? Moon or not, deadly as sin? <laughs> that's terrible. I know, that's the only thing I could come up with. But they capitalized Mondas and then they ca capitalized Telos. Yeah. yeah. Tell everyone lesbian off Saturday. <laughs> I don't know. It's very rude to your co-worker. It, what co-worker? I don't know. <laughs> I don't have any. Well, as far as I know, <laughs> they might have been converted by now. Um... Something that's given not enough attention in the book is the fact that uh, the doctor does have a doctorate, a medical degree. Oh, yes. That is from Joseph Lister, who gave his name to Listerine. Yes, uh, but it wouldn't be entirely useless, as Polly seems to think, as it at least would acknowledge the concept of bacterial infection. And it turns out this, but it's not viruses, so that probably is why the doctor has trouble finding it. But still, the fact that he finds anything is always a... Uh, miracle on these things the um just looking through the notes the uh, the scene where ben and jamie kind of have a tiff over polly yes what was that about well whatever <laughs> it is you're never gonna see it again <laughs> yeah it was like... yeah i presume it's simply that davis and peddler seem to think that if there are two young strapping men in a tardis and there's a woman around and she's of childbearing age, they're going to go at it at some point. Can't they just go after each other? I wish they would, because, God. <laughs> that, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to drift off to pleasant dreams here for just a little bit. Technical difficulties. Oh, my God, such a technical difficulty. See, the Cybermen wouldn't feel this particular sensation either, because they'd presumably chop their dinguses off yeah oh that's an interesting yeah <clears throat> that's an interesting visual yeah but you won't see it again no no doesn't come back there isn't any tension between them on that score in underwater menace if anything they get along really well wow. really quickly and i don't recall if in the next story it's going to happen and do they ever does have a gangbang no, no. <laughs> but is ben and polly ever like 
more explicitly a thing? Well... Because this whole time, it's been kind of, like, hinted at, yes. or at least Ben has some feelings. Polly is usually... Well, doesn't even react usually to this it. This is this is gonna this is gonna a little bit presage what we're gonna talk about when we get to their last story, but it depends on who you talk to and it depends on what you read or listen to. Okay. Because there are two versions of what happened to Polly and Ben. The first version is they have nothing to do with each other once they leave the TARDIS. They meet up again in a hotel room in 1986, as close as they can to the Antarctic. Uh, continent so that they can basically celebrate the ho- the anniversary that down there on the Antarctic base there they are in their younger versions and they kind of toast the fact that they've made it this far which is kind of sweet That's but nice. they yeah. haven't been together that whole time if you listen to the audios however the audios have gone a step further than that um, <clears throat> in fact, the audios are pretty much considered canon by one of the producers, Stephen Moffat, because yeah. he um, has the Eighth Doctor refer to all of his companions when he appears before he regenerates into the War Doctor. So we assume if he's naming them on screen, they must have actually happened, which means the Big Finish audios happened. And by that convoluted logic, yeah. when the Fifth Doctor meets five of his companions... One of them is Polly. Do you see anything of Ben these days? Actually, I see all of him every day. Really? You didn't think we'd last, did you? You should have seen my parents' faces when I brought him home. I thought Father was going to pick... What was that? Which is really lovely, given that the actor who plays Ben has been dead now for a good 15, 20 years. Yeah. But still... So either way. Either way. They have have a good... They have a good... Something. Something. (laughs) Yes. But... I prefer the audio version. Yeah. I mean, the short story is sweet and all, but I would prefer to think of them as a married couple going and trying to find that hotel room and saying, okay, let's wait for the lights to go out. Up oh, there go the lights. Mondas is going to blow up any second now. Oop, there it goes. Happy anniversary, which seems awfully sweet. Yeah. Yeah, I just wondered because yeah. it's... It's, it's not like Barbara, where it was like, no. is it happening? Is it not happening? In one story, he's a white knight, and then other, it's like, yeah, what? Yeah, exactly. Well, God. Ben and Polly have been, it's always been more kind yeah. of there. Well, if you ever want a happy um, answer to those questions, don't ever talk to the actors. <laughs> William Russell, who plays, oh, who played Ian Chesterton, yeah. to this day says, oh yeah, Barbara and Ian were just good friends. It's like, the hell they were. Oh my god, have you watched those episodes lately? Yeah. My god, there's so much chemistry between them that you could open a lab and make meth. <laughs> Blue meth. Yeah, it's just insane. And by the way, if you watch Twitch right now, can you tell I'm trying to get a Twitch sponsorship? If you watch Twitch right now, you'll be able to see them in action. <laughs> Not that kind of action. It's 1964. Grow up. Yeah. Anyway. Anything else we want to say about this very odd and also very <sighs> kind of dull book in its own way yeah un- un- unremarkable unmemorable really okay should we go to goodreads then uh yeah we can all right so as we always do let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers then follow up with our own ratings by the way if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book simply read the book write a review on goodreads and then write a comment somewhere so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves you may just get your review read out loud here the average rating for this book out of five stars i just burped there is 3.57 or in other words fairly average yeah 3.57 here's some sample reviews james perry not to be confused with the admiral who actually went to the north pole which has nothing to do with antarctica and nothing to do with the story i don't know why i brought it up gives this only two stars and says the times i found myself enjoying doctor and the cybermen most was during the remnants of the tv version the moon base's excellent plot excellent but even those parts were savaged and tainted by Jerry Davis's unimpressive prose and the inexcusable butchering of the character of Polly, 
no longer an intelligent and useful character, rather than a frankly sexist representation. Well, she did come up with the uh, thing that saves them all, dude, so I don't know where you're getting off. April is a bit more forgiving. So is the uh, month, actually. She gives four stars to the audio version and says this is an entertaining novelization of the second Doctor episode. The reader, Annika Wills, the actress who played Polly, was good with voices, and having the Cybermen voiced by Nicholas Briggs, who voices them in the new series, was a fun bonus for me. The downside, the plot is very thin, and as often happens when the focus is on action, instead of thoughtful or clever moments, pretty illogical, I will say that the audiobook of the novelization was an improvement over the actual episode, as some of the scripting is very flat and boring on screen. And finally, Daniel Kukwa, whom we've heard from before. Lots and lots. Lots and lots, because he always he always writes a good review. Mm-hmm. Gives it four stars, but he still has some very critical things to say. Jerry Davis is a strange character. He was a ballsy script editor, determined to bring action and pace and modernity to Doctor Who in the late 60s, but it was usually at the expense of intelligent, thoughtful, complicated plots. He was all about formula, base under siege, out-and-out heroism, and lots of B-movie serial ideas and cliché characters. That said, most of his target novelizations are first-rate, especially this one. Wow. You'd never know this straightforward but exciting tale was rather corny and one-dimensional on the TV screen. Cherish this novelization of the Moonbase and skip the televised version if you have a choice. I think we read a different book. We may have done. So, out of five stars, Danny, what would you give this one? Two. Why two? Because the doctor wasn't in it. The the doctor's party wasn't in it. Uh, This was a story about Cybermen trying to take over a moon base. And it seems to me that... Had they had a little more information and not had the prodding from the doctor, they probably would have figured this one out on their own. True. And to me, that kind of kind of ruins it for me. Yeah, I could see that. Because you could see a much less sleep-deprived and fresher Moonbase crew finally figuring out it's the fucking sugar. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, spoiler alert, it's the sugar. Which is just one of the dumbest things ever in Doctor Who. So I could see that. Two out of five? Yeah. Okay. Dalton. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not gonna go much higher. I'd say like 2.5. Um, for lots of the same reasons that we've already talked about. It's just kind of flat. A lot of the characters are could be interchanged with anything else. This doesn't even have to be a Doctor Who book, really. Like, yeah. Um, not not the best, not the worst. Just kind of flat. Yeah. Um, Looking forward to see what comes next. Okay. <laughs> well, it's going to be fun, believe it or not. Um, I feel the same way. I would give this a 2.5 probably at highest. It's Jerry Davis, and Jerry Davis tends to be okay, but as you saw in that one passage I read to you aloud, Jerry Davis, when he's bad, is really bad. And I did get confirmation from Nigel Robinson that the Celestial Toymaker apparently doesn't seem to have been written by Jerry Davis at all. So, mm, yeah. The, yes. Yeah, so see, you were right. The first instance we have of his prose is the Highlanders. Oh, no, no, the Tenth Planet. Mm-hmm. We read the Tenth Planet first. And the Tenth Planet is nominally better than this book, and the Highlanders is actually much better than this book. But this book is kind of, yeah, the one thing I will say about this book, and the reason why it gives me, uh, I give it that .5, it was one of the first Doctor Who novelizations I ever read, probably the third or the fourth. It confused the fuck out of me because it was called Doctor Who and the Cybermen, and yet Polly knew who the Cybermen were, and everybody knew who the Cybermen were, and I was all confused. And it also taught me the word, if not the feeling, contrition. In fact, when I got to that moment in the book, I had this very strong, I had this very strong flashback to having asked my sister Carolyn, um, Carolyn, what what, was, what does this word mean? And she looked at it and she said, "Oh, that means when you feel bad." I was like, "Oh, okay." So Jerry Davis taught me contrition. Well done. Yes, which I'm not displaying when it comes to giving the score to this book. Two point five out of five. <laughs> 
Well, thank you, guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time, especially on this one. Next time, we look at the novelization of a completely non-existent story. Well, that's not true. It existed once, but now it doesn't. The Macra Terror by our old friend Ian Stewart Black. And it's, yes, and it's not even Black History Month. It's amazing. It's Black History Month in June. In the meantime, actually it's Black History Month in June. No, it's going to be in June because we're taking a little bit of a break, uh, for, uh, listeners, just for a little while. Because we have been going full stop and we need a uh, break from it. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces. You can also visit our mostly pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dw target bc also feel free to watch videos of our first 12 episodes give us a thumbs up or comment on youtube at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperdalic forward slash videos follow us on twitter we're at dw target bc or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice if all else fails you and it invariably will email <laughs> us at dw target bc at gmail Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. No one. So, guess that's it for Le Chouf and Benoit. Balls. Nailed it.